So the talk, the title of this talk is The Sure Heart's Release. The Sure Heart's Release. In our practice, we begin to understand more and more deeply the changing evanescent experience directly, moment to moment, the nature of the mind and the body processes without overlaying any concept upon it, just seeing moment to moment, just experiencing moment to moment what's going on. We learn how to bring a tender awareness to experience so that experience is not being pushed away if it's unpleasant, it's not being clung to if it's pleasant, just a very tender, compassionate awareness moment to moment. We do this so the heart and mind can unfurl from its tight knots. It can open. And in that opening, where it's folded in upon itself, something can be released or revealed and known that may not have been known before or may not have been known so clearly before. We learn how to be courageously clear and bring a sobering honesty to whatever is happening, even when it's difficult. So our practice is not about just always going towards something pleasant. It's about opening to the unpleasant in compassionate, balanced, clear ways. So with this beautiful balance that we're uh, developing here, When this happens, it enables us to see the path more easily and to be able to pause and not lean into the future so much, not be clinging to or chasing after experience. We learn to understand very deeply and intuitively what is unwholesome, what leads to suffering for ourselves and others and to relinquish that, to let it go, or to not act on it. We learn to know what is wholesome, what benefits others and ourselves, what leads to the end of suffering, and we learn how to cultivate that. So we learn how to relinquish the unwholesome, to cultivate the wholesome. And with these two as a basis, there is a beginning of the development of wisdom We can't develop wisdom unless these two are strongly developed. This wisdom is a liberation from ignorance, from delusion, from greed, from hatred. Sometimes it's called the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion. So for most most of us, this happens in ever-deepening ways. It happens bit by bit along the process of our practice. It usually happens um, gradually. For only a few people, it happens very quickly. But usually it's very gradual. We learn that in time, we experience less and less grasping, less and less aversion. We experience more and more contentedness more and more letting go very easily, more and more goodwill. 
in very spontaneous ways. And because of this, we become, uh, we come to a place where we can rely on ourselves more because we know the habit patterns that will benefit ourselves and others are more deeply ingrained than the habit patterns that will bring sorrow and suffering to ourselves and others. So that no matter what happens outside of us in this ever-fluxing, changing world, no matter what stones are thrown into the pond of our life, our awareness, our hearts, our mind, we know that it will always come back. It will always lean or incline towards what is wholesome. Deep within and beyond the pleasure and pain, this wisdom experiences life more and more clearly. The wisdom of knowing what's unwholesome, what's wholesome. When we go towards what is good, we turn away towards what doesn't lead to happiness. So we respond very organically in skillful ways. We don't have to think about it so much. We rely on ourselves. And this produces a very um, stable inner quiet when we can do that. We know we can see the ripples come and go, and it doesn't bother us as much because we have a deep sense that we can wait. We can wait for those ripples to settle down, and then from that settled place, we can respond. We can do what we need to do in the world. So tonight I'd like to talk about how our practice produces or develops those refinements that we need in order to develop ever-deepening wisdom. Not from acquiring anything or attaining anything. Not for having certain meditative states of concentration or calm or even blissful states not even from the spiritual knowledge that we gain from books or that intellectual understanding of the Dhamma. But we know this place, we come to know this place, this deep place of opening our hearts, training the mind with wisdom from letting go, from purifying the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion, and from developing non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. The process of mindful awareness has immediate and far-reaching benefits. And I spoke about uh, the quote of Sogyal Rinpoche the other night, which I'll repeat again. He says, the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart. This is the immediate benefit because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in ourselves. And only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful to others. This is the far-reaching benefit. So we understand when we do these practices, we don't do it for our benefit alone. We do it for the benefit of all beings. When I first started practicing, I was searching for something, some peace of mind, just some basic peace of mind in my daily life, some happiness and calm that could be easily accessible. And I 
really couldn't find it that easily. I was a single parent of three small children at that time. And I remember the first time I came into contact with the Dharma. I was really looking for something. What I really wanted was that kind of magic bullet or that magic wand that would just dissolve all the hardships and let me just live in bliss for a while, even for just a while. And I later learned, of course, that I, it had to come from my own effort, not from somebody else's effort. I had my three children with me one time, and um, when I was going home, there was a sign on the side of the road when I lived in California that there was a spiritual fair, um, a grouping of a lot of spiritual lineages and uh, even drumming and uh, chanting and a lot of things that were happening during the hippie days of my life, earlier in the 70s. And so I thought, well, I'll go in just to take a look. And I entered this huge auditorium with my three children. They were all small from maybe six, five and under, maybe five, four and uh, two years old. Can't remember exactly. And this um, gymnasium that I entered in was probably four, at least four times as big as this hall that we're in. And the kids were all pulling on my my jeans and my shirt tails and wanted to go home and they were of course you know that wasn't interesting to them at all where I was at and so they were crying and whining and I saw in the far corner of that huge gymnasium in the far right hand corner a sign that I could read from far away that said silent retreat <laughs> so <laughs> I am no dummy I went for that sign right away. I just passed by everything else, as beautiful smelling as the incense was and the sounds were of the chanting and as wonderful as the dancing of the drumming was in certain areas, I just went right for that. And they were going to conduct a three-day uh, retreat, a weekend retreat shortly after that, so I signed up and they were so helpful. You know, I. I took care of my, found someone within that group to take care of my children over the weekend. And I went to that retreat, and from the beginning it was made very clear to me that this is the place I should be, that everything that was offered there, even, it was, even if it was just offered in a cursory way, you know, you can't give much on a weekend retreat, I knew that there was everything there that I needed for the path of practice that would lead me to more and more happiness, less and less suffering. There was a possibility it presented, even in that weekend, the possibility not just to experience a temporary kind of release, a temporary kind of happiness, but something that was uh, very, very deep. The, the, the ability to, to deeply know unconditional peace, unconditional happiness. And this is what drew me the most about that uh, time there, that I somehow deep inside me, 
I knew that I could make that aspiration to be totally liberated. And I never had a lack of faith in that from the very beginning. I heard shortly after that this quote from the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya. This is about the sure heart's release. And so this has meant a lot to me all during my practice, and I wanted to share this with you. This is from the simile of the heartwood. So the Buddha says, This holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind and heart that is a goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. This unshakable deliverance. And so that is what drew me. But I knew that the development of virtuous conduct, the development of sila, which is virtuous conduct, the development of concentration and uh, calm, which develops deeper wisdom. This is indeed part of the path. There are benefits to be derived from practicing these alone. And this is the, uh, a very stable platform for wisdom to arise from. So the sure heart's release, this is what virtuous conduct, concentration, deep knowledge and wisdom lead to this unshakable deliverance. Steve talked last night about the Four Noble Truths. And in the Four Noble Truths, he talked about the Third Noble Truth, the truth of the end of dukkha, this unshakable deliverance. He talked about it in terms of moment-to-moment experience of the end of dukkha. But the Buddha talked about it as uh, unshakable deliverance, so that there can be a time when there is a complete extinction, the purification of the heart and mind, of all aversion, any form of ill will, any form of attachment, and all ignorance. So as we go back into our lives, we'll want to take with us, of course, How do we live this holy life towards that goal? How do we bring this into our lives in a practical way? So it's said that there are three areas of life that we can pay attention to, just to make it really simple for ourselves when we go back there into the world of our families and our jobs, our communities. These three areas we can practice in will support this profound liberation. If any of you have the aspiration that your life can go in that direction. These are called the three pillars of the Dhamma. It's the framework that Manindra would use when he talked about these three pillars. They're all practices of mindful awareness. And these three pillars are the first one is called dana, or the practice of giving or generosity. 
and the second is sila, or the practice of living in harmony, living uh, in a place where we don't harm others, we don't harm ourselves. And the third pillar is called bhavana. This is the development of mind and heart. It's a training of the mind through concentration, through developing calm, tranquility, which opens to deeper and deeper wisdom. So this bhavana part we've been doing here every day. A lot of the training in bhavana, this third uh, pillar of the Dhamma, is the training in concentration. We've been doing this with our Brahma-vihara practice of practices of metta and also of equanimity. It's also the development of deep wisdom when we do our vipassana practice, the wisdom of understanding in ever-deepening ways, impermanence, impersonality, and also understanding the unsatisfactoriness of life. So there's a story of the Buddha walking in the forest with a group of monks. It's a, an old story that many of you have heard, I'm sure. He bent down and he scooped up a handful of leaves. And he said to his monks, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forest? And the monks, being mostly completely enlightened beings, knew the answer easily. <laughs> and they said to the Buddha, of course, the leaves in all the forests are more than the leaves in your hand. And the Buddha replied, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest. But what you need to free yourselves is only like the leaves in my hand. And this is what I offer you, these teachings. This is all that is needed for freedom and liberation. And this made it so simple for me to just look at these three pillars of the Dhamma, take it into my life. Manindra used to always say, keep it simple, keep it easy. Don't complicate things. Just look to how you are developing dana, or giving, sila, living in harmony, bhavana, which we do a lot on our intensive retreats. So these three areas of my life, these three pillars, have been a reliable foundation, a sturdy foundation from which my own life, my own dhamma understanding can grow. So with these practices, not only do they promote well-being for others, for example, the practices of giving, the practices of living in harmony, dana and sila, but that open-hearted, loving connection promotes a deep sense of well-being in ourselves. We all know when we feel the heart of generosity or when we've uh, refrained from harming, when we've taken the precepts very seriously and we understand we're refraining from harming, or we're doing something to create harmony when we're doing not just refraining, but we're creating harmony, we feel a deep sense of well-being in ourselves that's undeniable. We feel our intrinsic goodness. We're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness, inadequacy, 
self-deprecation. We feel like we're really good human beings, basically. And this is so important. It gives us a faith to keep going, to keep our practice going, um, to help others, of course. With the practices of concentration and wisdom in the third pillar of the Dhamma, it brings forth a depth of understanding which we may not have seen before. Just being able to develop so much concentration and so much tranquility that it can pierce through the illusion, the illusion of ignorance, even the illusion of suffering, and see so clearly what life is all about. So it brings this unshakable faith faith in our ability to actually walk our path, to walk our talk. So these are all trainings. These are all disciplines. These are all mindfulness practices. Dana, generosity, sila, living in harmony, and bhavana, developing the mind and heart. This is from uh, the book, The Heart Essence of the Great Perfection. Now in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is a source of our well-being the source of our happiness. So all of these you can look to as disciplines, not just the training on the sitting cushion when we're training the mind in concentration, calm, but in our lives as well. Can we look to the trainings of dana and sila as disciplines, as foundations for liberation? So I'll like to explore and fill out the first and the second of these three pillars of the Dhamma this evening. Um, We have been giving instructions in uh, concentration and vipassana during all of these uh, days that we've been together. And Steve talked about wisdom last night, the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. So tonight, filling out the first two pillars of the Dhamma. So first, dana the practice of giving. Dana means giving. Um, Generosity is another word, and that is, generosity is an inner attitude that we have. So when we give, it's not just giving willy-nilly, it's from this intention, this wholesome act of generosity from within us, very consciously giving. So it's not just feeling it also, not just feeling our generosity, but it's actually acting it out. From a general perspective, generosity has two aims, and both aims deepen our understanding of the value of giving, of the value of giving from a place of inner generosity, that attitude. The first aim is to help others, of course. When we give, we help others to overcome or to prevent any suffering they may feel 
in, in that moment, or maybe we want to prevent some suffering that they may have in the future. We give of our time. It's not just material giving. We give of our time. We give of our energy. We give our open heart. Just listening sometimes is a great help. And of course, material resources we give. It relieves others of their suffering in, in the present, in the future. What I see about giving is that one of the things that happens in others is it inspires a sense of worthiness in other people, in those who receive our gifts. And this is really an important gift that we give them. When people feel a sense of worthiness, that they were worthy to be given this gift of our time, of our energy, we connect with them in ways that say, you are a worthy person. I know when people have given to me, I feel that in myself, that I'm worthy of gifts. I'm worthy of people's time. I'm worthy of being listened to. I think that it gives us all a sense of inner richness, you know, that this worthiness within us, this is a sense of richness that people don't often feel in this day when things are going so fast. When people have said to me, or I've been able to say to others, I acknowledge your goodness, I acknowledge your beauty. I, it's like bowing to the goodness, the purity within them. This is more valuable than we can ever imagine. Just to make someone feel loved is such a great thing. I uh, was reading in my last trip, I picked up a book about random acts of kindness. And I read this and I remembered my friend, this little excerpt. When I was going through a very difficult time, this is a story of someone in this book, someone called me up and played piano music for me on my answering machine. It made me feel so loved and I never found out who it was. <laughs> I just kind of imagined that, and I remembered a friend of ours. She plays a harp on Maui, and she's a very busy person. She also has her a business that she does, but she's um, a great musician, and she also conducts the Maui Symphony uh, Choir. And so in her spare time, which she has very little love, she takes her harp and she goes to the hospital and plays it, and plays it in the emergency ward and on floors in the hospital and anyone who calls her to the room. She just plays her harp. And just that in itself gives a gift of having that person feel worthy of her time and of her, she's a concert harpist and just to give of herself that way. It's really so touching. Um, I just thought of all the people that she's benefiting, you know, and that whole, the nurses and the doctors and how it eases their tension and their minds and how they can go and do their work better. It also, when we give, it inspires gratitude in the other person. I think we don't often remember that. 
and when I've given to someone, and a lot of times all of you, when you're saying thank you or how much gratitude you have about the Dharma or about any one of the gifts that you've received here, not just from us but from the staff, from the services that you've received, I really feel a sense of um, ease in your hearts when you feel gratitude. And I feel like the gift that you receive is not just what you've been given, the services or the Dhamma, but the gift you receive is that you can feel gratitude in your own hearts. And this is a medicine. This is a medicine we don't often remember that we can develop more because it comes, it's a medicine that we can have from our from our own inner medicine cabinet. We don't have to look for it somewhere else. There's plenty of places we can just turn and look here and there and feel a sense of gratitude. But when somebody gives us a gift and we feel gratitude, I wouldn't miss that moment for anything, just to see and feel the gratitude in that person's heart. It's a great gift we give them. It's a great gain for them when others feel gratitude. So this is the first aim, is to help others. The second aim is helping ourselves, supporting our own well-being when we're doing this, when we're practicing giving from an inner sense of generosity. Other wholesome states of mind are developed if you look closely in every act of giving there's loving-kindness in our hearts. That loving-kindness, that goodwill, we want to connect our goodwill with their goodness. Very important. Sometimes uh, when we see the suffering of another, that offering of goodwill, that goodwill turns to compassion because we see their suffering and we want to alleviate it. So we feel that su- that compassion in our own hearts. Sympathetic joy is developed because we feel joyful when someone receives something that helps them. When we look closely, that's why we we do this practice of equanimity in the way that we do, so that we can constantly make the habit of turning back to our own hearts and seeing what's happening here. We don't always have to be pulled out to out there, the circumstances out there. We can look in here and see the joy that we have in giving. It's said that we need equanimity in order to give because in order to part with what we feel is ours, our time, even our our effort, our energy, our material resources, we must be able to let go with equanimity. So it brings an immediate happiness within us that no one can take away when we feel that happiness. It's said that giving is surrounded by happiness, if you look closely. Just by thinking of giving a gift, we're happy. And in the actual giving of the gift, if you look to your own heart, there's a sense of happiness there. And even afterwards, when you've given, you feel happy. And oftentimes when I'm doing metta practice, 
when we come to the part of remember your own goodness, you know, when we're with oneself and we try to remember one's good qualities, one's virtuous qualities, I often remember acts of generosity because it brings me to a place of recognizing my own goodness, inner worth, and I feel happy. My heart feels open. It's not big things either. It's little things that I remember. And I remember it mostly when the person who receives it really receives it, really knows the value of the act of generosity. One um, that I often remember is uh, meeting up with a very good nun friend of mine in Burma. Her name is Kamala also. We call her Ma Kamala. Ma is that sign of respect and for who she is. Um, every time I go to Burma, I carry medicines with me and herbs. She happens to be a doctor, and so she uses a lot of medicines and herbs for people. She's an, also a nun, of course, and so she treats a lot of people in the meditation uh, center that I go to. And when I went to this retreat, I also brought a beautiful shawl that I used and other things, little gifts I had to give her, and an umbrella. And I intended to leave all of these with her when I left. And so after the retreat ended, I made an appointment with her to offer her these gifts. And so she just, it's, it's a very kind of a formal thing when you give in Burma because people know the value of generosity there, the value to your own heart. And so she made an appointment with me and I met with her in some little office in the monastery. And so when we went back there, she very, just with her uh, beautiful, gentle heart, she just waited for me to say what I had to say. And I took my gifts out and I offered them to her. And in Burma you offer with two hands. It's like you're giving of yourself totally. So you hold the gifts with two hands and you offer. And I said to her, uh, Ma Kamala, I have these gifts to give you. They're very small. They're very small, but I offer them with all my heart. And she said to me something that resonates over and over. Um, and she says this word, chetana, which means intention. And I said, I offer these to you with all my heart. She received them in quite a formal way and in a way which I can remember. And she knows that that's important to do. So when she received them, she took some time and then she looked at me and she said, in a very piercing way, she said, Kamala, Chetana is not small. Chetana is not small. She repeated it. Intention is not small. And really, whatever intention, if it's wholesome or unwholesome. So she really made my heart feel how powerful, no matter what the gift is, no matter what the giving is, it's so, it's huge, really, that kind of inclining the mind towards generosity and acting it out 
in our lives. It really gives us a sense of inner wealth, of inner richness. It's a medicine for clinging, for holding on, because it counteracts that tendency in ourselves to hold on to anything. It develops an easefulness of letting go. So every time we give of ourselves, we learn how to let go more easily, even of our views and opinions, of our need to be right, of our resentment, of the ways we blame others or ourselves. We can let go more easily. This is from the words of the Buddha. If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. So when I read this, I always remember Manindraji when he was with us um, those two months that he was recovering from some surgery. And when we would sit down with the ta- at the table, when we would eat with him, he would take whatever is in his plate that was rightfully given to him, of course. He, lives on, he lived on dana completely, on generosity completely. Whatever was given to him, he would share with us. Whatever was in his plate, which was his, then he would, if it were a banana, he would peel it and he would shove it in our mouth, you know, at the table. He would say, please take this, because, you know, he wanted to see our happiness in um, him feeding us. And of course, that was an act of generosity. Or he would take some of his food and he would put it on our plate. And there were times when I wasn't with him at home because I'd go to work and leave him home alone and check on him once in a while. And sometimes I'd check on him and I'd say, how are you? Are you okay? And he would say, oh, yes, mom. He called me mom. Yes, mom, I'm okay. I fed the insects and the, and the animals today with some of the food on my plate. You know, he would give a little bit of something even to the ants that were crawling on the corner, you know. It was the reason why we had so many insects during that time. (laughs) But that was Manindra. You know, he wanted to share whatever he had. He would give. Of course, he shared the Dhamma, which is said the Dhamma is the highest gift. The gift of the Dhamma is the highest gift. And even when he wasn't well, you know, I would come just after the surgery, he'd be laying down and he would say, come, come to my room in the morning and you sit with me. And so I would, before work, I'd come and sit in his room. He'd be laying down and um, he would chant from the laying down. He would chant the protection chants, the paritas, and then uh, I would listen to them. And then he'd give a short dhamma talk after we sat, even when he wasn't feeling well, he would give that gift of the Dhamma. So the far-reaching benefit of this practice of giving and generosity 
is that we develop non-greed within ourselves. We develop the ability to just let go more easily. Utejaniya, one of our teachers, says, really generosity is giving away your greed moment by moment when we do it. It's giving away your greed. Achan Cha says, if you let go a little, you'll have a, lot of, a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So this doesn't mean letting go of all your material goods. It means really letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's what really what we're learning how to do in our life. At the moment of our death, can we die with a, li- a loving heart? Can we die with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion? Can we let go of all formations, even before our physical death? Being able to let go of everything. Complete peace and freedom, liberation in this very life, even while we're still alive. So that's the first pillar, generosity, giving. And the second pillar is sila, or morality living from a place of non-harming, living from a place of um, creating harmony or, or maintaining harmony, being careful of our speech and behavior. And this is what we do when we practice the precepts seriously in a very sincere, committed way. It's a deep respect for all beings when we practice the precepts of non-harming. It's a deep respect also for ourselves. We're not harming our own hearts when we don't act out or speak out with greed or with hatred. There are certain junctures in my own practice where I've made the intention to clean up my act just a little more. You know, we're all good human beings, but we know there are places in us where we just speak too fast before we've even thought, is this harmful or beneficial? Or we've acted out of impatience before we've even thought, is this going to benefit me or others? Or will this be harmful to myself or others? So knowing this in myself, and or sometimes witnessing in others how others act or speak, and reflecting, oh, I see a little bit of that in myself. That's not the way I I would like my life to go in that direction. So I really make a committed effort to work on something like speech or something like um, telling the truth and being very precise in telling the truth in relationship to speech. Or even in right speech, being quiet sometimes, not needing to say everything. We have the precepts, the trainings for that. And remember that they're not commandments. It's not like, um, you know, you'll go to hell or something if you do, if you break the precepts. But they're trainings. We take them that way. I undertake the training to refrain from killing, from stealing, from saying something that's untrue, from 
committing sexual uh, acts that harm others, taking intoxicants that will cloud the mind. The Buddha called these trainings because he knew how human we are and how difficult it is to be perfect. So we need to train ourselves to do this. These are mindfulness trainings, just like dana, the practice of generosity, is. We need to remind ourselves as often as we can when we take the precepts. Be aware of what we're doing all all through the day. Sometimes I take the precepts just out of the clear blue sky. I decide to take the precepts when I'm in a line at the grocery store, you know, and I'm waiting. I just decide to take the precepts. Or in the morning, in my sitting, you know, the obvious time. Or before I go to sleep. Sometimes I can't go to sleep, so I take the precepts, you know, in Pali. And my heart eases because I kind of understand deeply that it's headed in a, in a good direction. My mind and heart are headed in a good direction. The proximate causes for this kind of careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. These two guardians are known in Pali, that ancient language, as Hiri and Otapa. These are the underpinnings of the precepts, these two guardians of the world. Many fine translators like to use these words in Pali because they mean much more than the English words that we translate them into. So I'm going to fill out what they mean because if we just took the English translation, we would think of those words differently. Hiri, H-I-R-I, is translated as moral shame. But it's not associated with self-aversion or that place of cringing because we feel ashamed. This Hiri is an inner sense. It's an inner sense that our words and behavior don't feel right. And we know that when we've said something or done something and it doesn't feel right. There are times when we don't know that because we're just so caught up in our own impatience or what we need to accomplish or what we need to know or that we're in a hurry. Or But more and more as we develop a calmer mind and heart, we come to know this inner sense that it, this just doesn't feel right, what we ourselves are feeling about ourselves. It's an intuitive sense that what is happening here, this maybe this whatever hindrance is coming up of attachment, aversion, or delusion, is going to hurt myself. So Hiri is this um, place of moral shame that we're going to hurt ourselves by continuing in this way of thinking, or by acting it out, or by speaking it out. We see the danger to ourselves. So Hiri is respect for our own integrity. That's what Hiri is. It's not really shame in kind of that negative way we think about it in Western terms. It's a respect 
that we have for our integrity. We have some kind of wisdom that if we act this out, if we say something that's going to be harmful, it's harming our own karmic stream. It's planting seeds in our karmic stream that will bear fruit. So that's Hiri. Otapa is translated as moral fear or moral dread. And this is a healthy form of fear, not only of the defilements, fear of the defilements that would cause harm to others, but also that it would break the harmony in a group, not just when we harm one person, that breaks the harmony in the whole group that we're in. And so we think about that. It's not just this one-to-one harm that we do, but that affects a lot of people, not just one person. We dread the difficulties that would come up from that. We dread or fear losing the trust of others. This is what we fear. It's a good fear, losing the trust of others, especially those that we respect those that we love. I remember once um, going to Sayadaw Upandita and having all these um, unwholesome thoughts come up in the mind. It was a time of silence. I was in retreat, and I wasn't saying them or acting them out, but they were, they were coming up in the mind over and over again. And I was having a lot of fear about them, and I thought this was a kind of fear you know, that was related to aversion. And he said to me, oh no, he said, this is a good fear. He was translated, of course, from the Burmese. And he said, this is a fear that you, you will plant these seeds in your karmic stream. And so the practice that I was doing of seeing them come up in the mind, aversion, ill will, hatred, all of that, and seeing them, bringing mindfulness to them, letting them go, letting them go, letting them go, was the correct thing to do. It wasn't getting replanted in the karmic stream. Recently, a friend told me that she had an interaction where she felt she was hurt, and she felt really reactive to being hurt. And she wanted to say something, but being mindful, just that moment of pausing and knowing what was going inside. She knew that if she said something at that moment that it would come out in the wrong way because it would be accompanied by um, kind of mm, striking out, striking back at this person. And it would just add more uh, pain to the situation. So she waited until there was a time that she felt her, her heart settled. She didn't want to hurt another person, and this was otapa. She didn't want to hurt that other person. She didn't want to disrespect herself, and this was hiri, that part of this hiri otapa, these two guardians of the world, their inner guardians. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, depend on, 
something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, he or she risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So sila is a beautiful inner place of protection, a beautiful form of renunciation. And dana also a form of renunciation, just really giving up our attachment, giving up our stinginess, giving up our clinging. These two are sturdy foundations, pillars of the Dhamma, so that third pillar, that bhavana, can stand alongside it, being very strong, very supported, from which our lives can really grow. If we don't take the practices of dana and sila seriously, that meditation part of bhavana, developing the mind, training the mind with concentration and wisdom, is not likely to be strong or deep. It's like um, taking a very strong medicine when we just do the meditation part alone, the developing of concentration and, and uh, tranquility. It's like taking powerful medicine, but the doctor says at the same time, try to avoid doing harm to your body by eating these certain things, by doing these certain things. You may take that powerful medicine, but you still do things to harm yourself, harm others. You break the precepts, for example, or you really don't work on this uh, practice of letting go. So the development of wisdom, of bhavana, of concentration, is not effective. So without ethics, harmony, the development of inner harmony and outer harmony, meditation practice is very weak. It can't grow strong. So these are the practices, the pillars of the Dhamma, giving, which is dana, and also sila, which is developing a beautiful heart uh, of non-harming. And both of these will help us as we continue our path when we go home. So let's sit for a moment. So this holy life does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit, or only the attainment of virtue for its benefit, only the attainment of concentration for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.